The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of Genesis, chapters 29 through 30. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simone. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Belah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she, gave him her, her, so she gave him her servant Belah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Belah conserved, conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Belah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zeplah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zeplah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zeplah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of uh, of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob the fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Praise be to God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Great job. That's a tough reading. A lot of a lot of names, a lot of funky names. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm uh, the pastor around here. Um, if you're new to Sacred City Church, I want to welcome you. We um, we study books of the Bible. We go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. We started our church going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, currently we are in the middle of one of the most difficult um, books of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the one that everybody loves to start out with. But by this time they give it up in their Bible reading plan, right? By the time the names and the begats and all the craziness starts to happen, they usually give up and walk away. Well, we are smack dab. Well, we're actually over halfway through it. And I have been personally enjoying it. If I'm the only one enjoying the sermons, hey, I'm sorry, but we're going to keep on going until we're done with 50 chapters. All right. So, but I've heard a lot of, um, a lot of good things about this book, about the sermons and the book of Genesis and how our eyes are kind of being opened up to how God has worked throughout salvation history, even in the Old Testament. So, um, we're going to find out what in the world, everything we just read. I, I know some of you are sitting here like, <laughs> what's he going to do with this one, right? This is, this is some crazy stuff going on, right? We got mandrakes, we got multiple wives, we got all kind of, what's he going to pull out of this one? Well, I, I think God's got something special for us uh, this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and we're going to get started. Father, I do thank you for your word. Um, I'm reminded that uh, the, the the people in this story didn't have the written word of God to go back to and to, to read and to find out what God is really like. Um, they had stories and they had, uh, you know, kind of uh, dad and grandpa's tales that have been pat that were passed down to them. But they didn't have the written word of God where they could come back and check their emotions and check their feelings against it to say this is what God says and this is not what God says. But I, so I thank you that we're in a different position, that we do have the word of God and that it can speak to us. It can confront us. It can, um, change some of our emotions and change some of our thinking that are, that are in error. And father, it can convince us of the love of God. It can convince us of the reality of God. It can convince us of so many different things. So we sit ourselves under the word of God this morning. We say, God speak through your word. Use me as your mouthpiece that I'm an imperfect, sinful man. And I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I ask that you would cause us to hear what the Spirit is saying to your church this morning. And we will give all glory to you and all honor to you and all praise to you. Um, And Father, I ask that we would enjoy it. That this would be for your glory and our joy this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you do not have a Bible... Um, I encourage you on your phone, on your iPad, open up to the book of Genesis. If you have the version Bible app, you can click on live events. Sacred City Church will pop up. You can click on it right there. Sacred City Church has their own iPhone and iPad app. So if you have an iPhone or iPad, you can click on, you can just search Sacred City in the app store and an iPad. And I think it's on Android as well. And uh, the Sacred City app will pop up. We also have a few Bibles in the back. We'd like you to, to, to follow along with us as we study God's word together. Um, all right. So let's get started. The scriptures say that God has put eternity into the human heart. And one thing that that means is that we, by our very nature, by the way that we were created, we desire heaven. Okay? We desire perfection. We desire love, connection, and eternal happiness. Am I right? Do we desire love and, and perfection and eternal happiness? Do we have this desire in us? Yes. And though being made in the image of God, we desire perfection. Now listen, because of sin, 
We will never experience that perfection this side of eternity. But boy, I forget that really quick. I forget that we will never find perfection on this earth. How many of you, you desire, you still, even though theoretically you know that we're made for eternity and that we've got sin, sin's kind of affected this world, we still desire perfection even in our relationships. I know that when I'm, th- when I'm not thinking or living out of my theological beliefs, my understanding of the scripture, my Christian worldview, I quickly live my, like my relationships should be perfect. I begin, I begin to say, you see, you know this is happen, happening when you start getting shocked by people's rudeness. You get shocked by people's selfishness. You get shocked by their jealousy or their envy. That is to say, you get shocked by people's sin. What? What is happening? People are sinning. People tell lies. People hurt each other. People, and then we we forget, just, I mean, we just need to, people are blowing themselves up, right? Literally, figuratively and literally, right? Like, we get shocked though when we forget that we are infected with sin and this world is not perfect and never will be perfect until Christ comes back to fully bring restoration to his creation, right? We live like something must be wrong. Relationships are hard. Do we live like that? That's bad theology, right? That's just bad theology. Marriage, what? I thought it was going to be easy. I thought it was going to be smooth sailing. Raising kids. I watched the Brady Bunch. That's not real. Right? We live. Now, now, if you, if you gave us a Bible quiz, we would say, yes, there's sin. Yes, there's indwelling sin in believers. Yes, there's sin in the world. and Bad things happen. If you give us the Bible quiz, we would answer that correctly. But the functional beliefs, how we live our life from day to day, we live our lives oftentimes like people should be perfect and like we expect our relationships to be perfect. Listen, every single person on this gorgeous planet are still mortally infected with sin. Christians and non-Christians. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners who sin. So why are we so shocked when relationships break down and people hurt us and we hurt others? I believe one of the main reasons, I believe I'm going to give you two reasons. I believe one of the main reasons is that we have a faulty view of the doctrine of sin. We just don't understand how subtle and how powerful and how pervasive Satan's devices can be in our own lives. Especially, especially the lives of Christians. And another reason is that I think most of us have never been taught how to fight our sin with the power of the gospel. Most of us have either been told, don't do that. Try harder. Suck it up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Christians don't do that. Don't do that. Most of us have either been taught that or then we've been taught, hey, it's all grace. So it doesn't really matter. Don't, don't worry about fighting. Forget that you're even in a fight. Just imagine you're in your happy place. And, you know, tip throw, tiptoe for the rest of your life through the tulips while you're in, in reality, you're in the middle of a war. Right? That Satan's after your family, Satan's after your soul, Satan's after your friends and your neighbors, but you go to your happy place, right? 
and I don't know, this is where I'm at right now. Carnival music plays, right? You're riding around on a tricycle. Somebody knows where I'm going, right? Right? That's where I'm going. Go to your happy place and just, you're not, you know, that's what happens. I hope today's sermon will help you in both of these areas. I hope it will show you, one, the deceitfulness of, the deceitfulness of sin, and it will also show you how to fight against that sin in the power of the gospel. It's not, don't do this, slap your hand, try harder, and it's not just give up and walk away because we're all under grace. There's a way to fight sin with the power of the gospel. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Today's text, we're in Genesis, end of 29, Genesis 30. And it, listen to this, this is so, God is so amazingly sovereign. It tracks the sinful breakdown of a family. It's a horribly sad section of scripture. And it shows us just how jacked up we all are without God as the chief object of our worship. So listen, this is a study in a sinful breakdown of a family, but it might as well be a church. It might as well be a business. It might as well be any relationship. This is how sin sneaks its way inside of a relationship and blows it up like a Trojan horse, right? Sneaks its way in and infects it with a poison that nobody's even aware of. And then all of a sudden, months and weeks and years later, it dies from the inside out. God in his graciousness has given us a picture of that today so that we can see what sin's trying to do and that we can fight against it with the power of the gospel. Because right now, Satan is trying to do that in your heart. He's trying to do that in your family. He's trying to do that in your missional community. He's trying to do that in your church. He's trying to destroy because he hates God and he hates you. That's the enemy of our souls. So we're going to see this as a three-step process. In our story today, we're going to learn it's a three-step process. The destruction and the fallout of a family is a three-step process. Number one, it's jealousy. Number two, it leads to addiction. And number three, the breakdown, the eventual breakdown of the family. So I'm going to catch us up really quick. Genesis started out, God creates everything. Everything is good. Sin, Adam and Eve, we've, most of us have heard the story. Sin enters creation, affects it completely, um, completely violates and destroys creation. And roses bear thorns and animals kill each other and men die and horrible stuff happens and envy and backbiting and brothers kill brothers and violence enters the world and it's just awful. And God is consistently at war with this sin and chooses to make a covenant with people that says, one day I'll bring redemption. One day I'll heal all things. One day I'll make everything right. And we see this story play out in the lives of what's been called the patriarchs. How many of you have ever heard, you know, maybe an Old Testament preacher, you've read the Old Testament and you hear people say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Right? The patriarchs, well, that's what we're working out. And most of us grow up thinking that these guys are somehow superheroes, somehow guys that we should all be like, right? Be like Abraham, be like Isaac, be like Jacob. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, don't. Please don't, right? Abraham selling off his wife anytime he gets in trouble. Here, sleep with my wife. She's my sister, right? He gets busted by God twice. Isaac does the same thing. And right now we're about to learn Jacob. By the end of the story, Jacob ends up with four wives. Okay. In the garden, 
God took a man. He said, man, it's not good that God be a man that be alone. I'm going to make a helper for. He makes a woman. For the first marriage in human civilization, in human history, God takes a man and God takes a woman and God walks them down the aisle and he presents them to himself. And he says, this is man, woman. You guys are united together in me right here. This is marriage right here. Man, woman, marriage. One man, one woman. Right? And then we see the sinfulness that's prevalent in a human heart. What he wants to do is he wants to have, you know, what's a man want to do? He wants to have multiple wives. And every time that happens, we see in scripture, God does not condone it. But it brings destruction, it brings pain, it brings turmoil, it brings a breakdown of a family. And now in Jacob, what we saw the last couple of weeks is Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob has, he's a younger brother and he comes out of the womb as a twin holding his other brother's ankle. He's saying, get back in here. Like, I want to be first. And we see that fight his whole life. He's a wrestler. He's a struggler his whole life. And eventually what he does is he deceives his brother. With a, over a bowl of stew, he deceives his brother to steal his birthright, the firstborn, the inheritance, the money, the wealth, all that. He deceives it. And then later on in the story, when his father's blind and he can hardly see, he dresses up like his brother and he walks in his brother and his, and his dad says, who is this? And he says, oh, it's me, Esau. And Esau and, and Jake, or I mean, and, his, and Isaac blesses Jacob with the blessing that should be reserved for the firstborn. So Jacob deceives his father. He deceives his brother. He stole his birthright. And now he stole the firstborn blessing. And then turmoil, destruction happens. He gets kicked out. He has to run away from the, from the house. The only one who's ever loved him is mother. He has to run away and leave her. He's penniless. He doesn't even get the inheritance that he, that he stole. He walks away penniless. He, he shows up to his old uncle Laban's house, who's a wicked man. He sees this woman. A smoking hot, right? Victoria's Secret model. I'm just going to say it. Okay. He sees her and he goes, everything that's happened to me in my past, all my hurt, all my pain, all my struggle, that will, none of that will matter if I get her. She will fix everything. That's a lot. I mean, men never say stuff like that, right? It's never happened again, right? That woman will make this man feel whole. You complete me, Right? <laughs> That's a lie. But, so he, what's he say? I'll work seven years for this daughter. Laban's a businessman. Seven years, huh? This guy is crazy in love. Hook. He knows he's got him hooked. So what he does is on the wedding night, Jacob works seven years to, 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 uh, to marry Rachel. And on the wedding night, it's dark. The libations have been flowing, right? He's drunk. That's what that means. He's drunk. He gets in the tent. And daddy, dearest, father-in-law, <laughs> Of all father-in-law. Laban dresses up his really ugly daughter. I'm just going to say that. That's what it really busted Leah, right? She's just, she's, she's the ugly duckling of the family. She has been. She's been looked over. She's the oldest daughter, but she's been overlooked. She's not pretty. Um, she just, I'm sorry. She fell out of the ugly tree, hit every branch on the way down, okay? <laughs> and, and so Laban takes her. He puts a veil over her face. Yes, he puts a veil over her face. It's dark. There's no lights, right? He can't hit the swish. Didn't work, right? Back then. So there's, it's dark. He, he sends him in and Jacob, or Jacob goes to bed with the woman of his dreams and he wakes up with Leah. Right? He wakes up with Leah and he's mad. He's angry. The deceiver has now been deceived. The schemer has now been schemed by Laban. But now we've got chaos. We've got him married to Leah, 
already consummated the marriage. And now he goes to his goes to the father-in-law. What did you do to me? I can't believe you did this. The schemer says, oh, I'll give you Rachel seven more years of work. Jacob is so crazy in love. Okay, I'll do it. Ends up working 14 years for her. Gets, so, but now he's married to two women. Sisters. That's going to go bad, right? That's just going to go bad, right? So he's married to two sisters. And that's kind of what we, and, and what happens is Rachel, the beautiful one, is barren. God closes her womb and he looks at Leah and says, Leah is hated. Leah is not loved by Jacob. She literally, he hated her. Jacob hated her. He had been tricked into marrying her and he hated her. And so God looks upon her and he, get, and he loves her. God chooses to love the one that's hated. And he opens her womb and she begins having children. And she thinks, I'm going to have these children. I'm going to finally, Jacob's going to love me. And we saw last week that that's, that, that's never going to work. Those kids become an idol in her life. But what happens now is Rachel is looking out. And look at, look at happens in verse one, chapter 30, verse one. This is where we are right now. Okay. Genesis chapter 30, verse one. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she what? envied her sister. Okay. I'm just going to stop you right here. In 10 years of pastoral ministry, I can't remember one sermon on envy or jealousy. In 10 years of pastoral counseling and pastoral work, I've never sat in my recollection. I've never sat across from a person who sat down and said, Justin, I'm really struggling with envy and jealousy. I don't know how to fight this in my life. I don't know how to get over this. I've had a lot of people sit down and say, I'm addicted to pornography. I'm cheating on my wife. I'm cheating on my husband. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm, I've had a lot of people sit down and say this kind of stuff. I've never had a person say, Justin, I'm really struggling with envy and jealousy. Can you tell me what the Bible says about that? Can you tell me how to fight against this? Envy and jealousy is the carbon dioxide of relationships. It's silent. It's scentless, but it's deadly. What is so bad? What, what is, Justin, what is so bad about jealousy? Doesn't jealousy kind of encourage the American dream? Doesn't kind of stir up, you know, invention, stir up um, just the entrepreneurial spirit. It moves capitalism forward. What's so bad about jealousy? Now, listen, it's amazing how often in the Bible, not always, but how often envy or jealousy is the beginning of the end for people. It's the downward spiral into self-destruction. Envy and jealousy, it's the downward spiral. We we see it with Saul. The downward spiral into self-destruction begins with envy. There's a lot of scriptures that tell us just to stay away from envy, but I'm going to show you just two. In James chapter three, it says, do not envy, but look for the wisdom that comes from down, comes down from above. Listen, do not envy, but look for the wisdom that comes down from above. So James contrasts envy with heavenly wisdom. He says, seek the wisdom from above, but if you envy, the truth is not in you. In other words, envy destroys our ability to think straight. Envy destroys your perspective. Envy makes you look look at things and not see things as they really are. Envy distorts. 
Envy is the opposite of wisdom. Envy kills wisdom. Envy leads to self-deception. The other passage is 1 Corinthians 13, 4. I'm sure we're really familiar with that one. It says very abruptly, love does not envy. It's interesting that the text doesn't say loving people don't envy. Because I know a lot of loving people and loving people in this world are sinners and sometimes they envy. But what this text says and what Paul is saying is love by its nature cannot envy. It does not envy. Envy, just as it is the opposite of wisdom, is a cancer to wisdom. It's the carbon monoxide of wisdom. You don't even know it's going on, but it's killing you. Envy destroys wisdom, so envy destroys love. Envy destroys the ability to love. Envy makes you unbelievably self-absorbed. What is it, Justin? What is envy? I think you have a pretty good definition of it if you just look right there in our text. Rachel saw Leah having children. She could not, so she envied. And there it is. Let me tell you what envy is. Romans 11.25 says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you know that? Do you know that? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Love empathizes. Love connects. Love feels with other people. Romans 12.15 says, If you are a loving person, you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. Now listen, but envy, envy, weeps when others rejoice. And envy rejoices when they weep. It's exactly, exactly the opposite of love. Envy is that thing in you which says, look at that person's success. It makes me hate them. Why? Because I deserve that. You have to be careful here. See, there's a number of different ways that envy happens. For example, I'm just going to use two names here. If this is your name, I apologize. I didn't know it. I just picked people that I didn't know. Okay. Andy might envy Bob because Bob has something Andy doesn't have. That's normal. Or not normal, but we get that, right? Andy looks at Bob. I want that. I deserve the promotion or I want that. He got it. I envy him. That's one way. Or Andy might envy Bob or be resentful of Bob because Bob has exactly the same thing that Andy has, but Andy doesn't feel Bob deserved it. See, Andy worked for his. I earned mine. He didn't deserve it. So envy gets in and begins to destroy this relationship from the inside out. When it comes right down to it, Envy is something in your heart. When you see other people with success, other people having joy, other people getting things, it's just, it's just like a dagger in your heart. When you see other people happy and other people you know, rejoicing and good things happening to other people, it's just a da- it cuts you. It bothers you. The neighbor pulls up with a new car. Or the marriage that's looking like it's going well. Or the promotion, at work, it just cuts you.
Envy is that which makes you think everybody else's situation is really about your situation. In envy, whatever is happening to other people, you think it's about you. See, Rachel saw Leah having children and couldn't rejoice with her sister. She envied her. Leah had been hated her whole life. Her dad thought, I'm never going to marry this girl. I got to trick somebody into marrying her. She had been overlooked and rejected and and abused and, and, and just completely passed over her whole life. And finally, God has shined his light down on her. He's poured his love on her and she's having birth. And Rachel has been the, 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 the just probably the, the center of the family's attention, probably the recipient of her father's doting affection because there's my girl. Look how beautiful she is. And all the men of the camp talking about how beautiful she is. That sister, the epitome, I'm just the epitome of a mean girl, right? Rachel, <clears throat> beautiful in appearance. And when she sees her overlooked, and hated sister, received the love of God and begin to have children, she doesn't say, oh, thank God, my hated sister is finally being loved, is finally finding something that's going to help her. She says, no fair. I want that. She hated her. She said in her heart, I should be having children. This is a competition not a loving relationship and the breakdown of the family and or the church begins. It begins with envy and jealousy. Can you see this playing out in your heart? Maybe you want to be married and you want to be married so bad that when you go to weddings, you can't even see her or him happy at the altar. Why? Because you want to be married. So you can't rejoice with those who rejoice. You want to be partner in your firm. Some friend or somebody else, some colleague has been promoted. They've made partner. You haven't made partner. You can't rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? You feel, that's what I want. I deserve it as much as that person does. Why am I down here and that person is up there? See, love rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weeps. But envy rejoices when they weep and weeps when they rejoice. Envy is that which makes you continually say, I deserve better than I have. Let me tell you what envy is. If envy is like an apple, at its core is self-pity. If you look at your life and you're saying, I deserve better than what I get. I've worked very hard. I've tried hard. God is unfair. My parents are unfair. My marriage is unfair. Life is unfair. And you think other people are the problem? My family's the problem. My MC is the problem. My pastor is the problem. My husband is the problem. I should be happier. I should be wealthier. I should be better off. I deserve more. At the middle of this is self-pity. The middle of it, it's this idea of I deserve more. I deserve to be better. And that self-pity makes it, listen to me, that self-pity, that self-focus makes it impossible for you to enjoy anybody else's joy. I want you to hear how impossible it is to live this way. If you want to be happy, the whole world needs to stop their lives and focus on you. (laughs) 
What's so terrible about envy is you look at everybody else's condition, everybody else's life, and everything that happens to everybody else is really about you. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed the subtle entrance of envy or jealousy in your heart? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? This is the seed. This is the carbon dioxide. It's going to kill your relationships. It'll kill your missional community. It'll kill your family. It'll kill your church. If it's not put to death itself, what are you going to do about it? Listen, I hope we, we have to realize this morning, you cannot underestimate the power of envy. Envy starts as self-pity and it spreads out so you can't enjoy other people's joy and it destroys your ability to love and it undermines your understanding of yourself because you feel like you deserve a whole lot better than you're currently getting. Listen, we better not underestimate envy. How do you think Satan got to be where he is? How do you think Satan got to be Satan? How do you think we got to be where we are? Why did Satan come and try to destroy all of God's good creation? He envied us. Why did Satan become the demon he is? He envied God. Why did Jesus Christ have to come? He came to do all the things that he had to do to deal with the products of envy. Don't underestimate envy and jealousy. Think about this. If envy ruined the entire universe... (laughs) What do you think it can do to your relationships? What do you think it can do to your heart? If envy caused the whole creation to fracture and turn into the broken, painful, sin-infested world that it is, what could it do to your heart? Christian, don't underestimate this. This is not for, you know, the people who don't believe in God or something. This is for us. Now listen, let's look and see how Rachel tries to deal with her envy. This is what she says. She envied her sister. So she says to Jacob, her husband, give me children or I shall die. Okay, now, I didn't know. Is this possible? Can the lack of children kill someone? Is that a, is that a disease I don't know about? I thought people actually died, you know, giving birth. I didn't know anyone died from actually not having children. Listen, Rachel tries to deal with her envy on her own. Guys, this is so convicting and so convincing to me. So many times we see what other people have and we want it and we think we deserve it. And the only way I can be healed is if I actually get it. I need their respect so much. They have to give me their respect. If they don't give me my respect, then I'm going to die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, she doesn't take this to God right away like her ancestors have. Like Sarah did. Right? Like her grandmother and mother. She doesn't take this to God necessarily in prayer. She goes to her husband. She doesn't meditate on God's goodness and grace that has already been poured out on her. Envy has destroyed her perspective. She can no longer see things clearly. Envy has killed her wisdom and she is totally blind to what is really going on. A a good thing, listen to me, a good thing, the desire to have children, has become a God thing. 
And when a good thing becomes a God thing, it morphs into a bad thing. Sin, any and all sin that is left unchecked, eventually turns into an addiction. See, Rachel's envy of her sister has taken her desire for children and has turned it into a false God in her life. And this is what envy does. It's the second step in the destruction of a family. It leads to addiction. Envy has taken a good thing, children, and turned them into a God thing. This is how you know a good thing has become a God thing in your life. I have to have it or I'm going to die. My life isn't worth living for Rachel unless I get pregnant. Think about this. She's got the man. She's got Jacob. She's got the fa- She's got the wealth. She's got the stuff. But my life isn't worth living unless I get pregnant. Can I ask you for you? What is that thing? Is it the promotion? Is it the three car garage? Is it the relationship? Is it the respect of other people? Is it your reputation? What do you live your life saying? If I don't get this, I might as well die. In the end, this envy leads to the second step of the breakdown of the family, which is addiction. And what we're going to see here, this is the classic addiction cycle. She's destroying the very thing she feels like she needs the most. She's after these kids. She needs these kids and she's destroying the family. She's destroying the relationship with her husband. She's destroying the thing that she's after. That's an addict. She can't stop herself. By the end, she doesn't even care. She isn't even worried about the relationships anymore. She's just saying, I have to have it. That's an addict. Anything you make number one in your life besides God ends up destroying the very thing. In a sense, it ends up destroying itself. If you make your spouse more important than anything else, your emotional dependence will then eventually drive your spouse away. There it is. If you make your children the most important thing in your life, you'll abuse them or you'll try to live your life through them. You'll drive them away. There it is. If you need the approval of other people, if friends are the thing in your life, first, you'll never tell them the truth. If friends are the chief concern in your life, you'll try to be something to please them. You'll be that shapeshifter person that when he's with this type of friends, he acts this way. When she's with that type of friends, she acts that way. That she's constantly worried about, what do they think about me? What did they think that I mean by that? What did they think I, oh, oh, constantly trying to morph into the perfect f- person for that specific friend. You'll hide from them. You won't tell them the truth. You'll tell them what you think they want to hear and you'll never confront them. And then secondly, if, if, if friends are the number one thing in your life, secondly, any criticism from them will devastate you. Absolutely devastated from them. I didn't mean that. What do you mean? No. Right? Just broken. No, you were mean. You were critical. What? Well, no, no, no. Right? You're devastated by them. We should never be surprised. We should never be devastated when someone says, hey, you sinned against me. We should be like, I probably did. Thank you for showing me that. 
because I know the doctrine of sin that I am inherently sinful and I screw up every day. Thank you for showing me that. See, this whole story, all of this envy, jealousy, it's just drenched with unmet expectations and unfulfilled desires. I th- this is a Jerry Springer episode at its finest. We got Jacob. Think about this. Jacob wants Rachel more than anything else in his life. Rachel is Jacob's God. Okay? And right here, she's looking at him and going, give me a baby. And he's like, honey, I don't know what you know, but I'm married to your sister and I'm doing my job over there. So it ain't with me, sister. Right? Like, am I God? Am I in the place of God? So Jacob is trying to worship Rachel and Rachel's, Rachel's not having it. That relationship is breaking down. That God has turned on itself. Do you see that? But look at this. Rachel, more than likely most commentators saying, well, she really, she doesn't really want kids. She wants the social status that comes from having kids. She wants to be the perfect wife. She wants to be the one everybody looks at and says, look, that's the, look how beautiful she is. She's got the beautiful family. And oh, look, you know, she wants the social status that comes from having kids. So what does she do? She's willing to destroy her marriage for it. She's willing to hate her sister to get it. And eventually it turns on the family itself. But then we got Leah in this thing too. And Leah wants Jacob's love more than anything else in life. And what does she get? Jacob hates her. You need me so much, woman. I can't even, I don't even want to look at you. You disgust me. So do you see all of this idolatry? Nobody's happy in the family. They're all wanting something else from each other. Nobody wants to really love each other. They're turning this, relate, this, this whole family is breaking down. It's got a cancer from the inside out. People that are meant to love each other, it's destroying. And I'm just going to say this, men, this is where Jacob, ooh, Jacob needed to lead. Jacob needed to step up and do what his father has done and what his grandfather has done and pray and say, God, his father and grandfather both said, I'm married to multiple women and this is not going well. And I need some help. Jacob does not do that. Jacob goes, woman, am I God? I ain't God. Figure it out. Men, that's an abdication of our leadership. In a sense, You are in the place of God in your home. You are the head, like Christ is the head of the church. You are the head of your home. You are meant to be spiritually leading. You are meant to be bringing things before God God in prayer with the family. You're meant to be doing that. You're meant to be rebuking the devourer, rebuking Satan, that is trying to get his claws in your family through envy and dissension and jealousy. You're meant to combat that with the word of God. And say, we're not living like this. I mean, I, I get it, Jacob. It's really hard to sit four ladies down. All right, ladies, I know I've made a few mistakes. Right? That's a tough conversation to have. But what happens here, guys, and I want you to see this. This is the, I'm, it's the carbon monoxide. And it, you can't ignore this. You can't ignore envy and jealousy. It will kill you. It will destroy a family. It will destroy a church. It's got to be confronted head on. And I know we don't like to confront things in this culture. I know we don't like to call sin, sin. We just want to hope that everybody will just eventually get along. 
They won't. This story, because of, I'm going to say, a man not willing to lead his family, things go completely Jerry Springer. He's got four different wives. And what we're about to see here, this is just crazy. Rachel becomes the sister wife, pimp, who's in charge of the spreadsheet calendar of who gets to have sex with Jacob on which night. Okay? This is just weird. The story gets really weird. And the funniest scene to me is in verses 14 to 18. Go to verse 14 and 18. In the days of a wheat harvest where Reuben went and found mandrakes. Okay, let's just stop right here. Mandrakes, it's an old wives' tale, okay? It's, well, actually, it's from, it's pagan mythology. It's all, but it's an old wives' tale that says mandrakes are an aphrodisiac, okay? Mandrakes are Viagra 1.0, okay? Uh, that if you eat mandrakes, it will help you have children. It is not true, no scientific evidence, but that's what they believe. If you ever know anything about Greek mythology, Aphrodite, she is called the lady of the mandrake. Okay, that's her name, the Lady of the Mandrake. So this is so he's out trying to figure out how to help his mom get pregnant. Okay, with these mandrakes. Now let's just keep reading. In the field, and he brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, "Please give me some of your son's mandrakes." Well, that sounds polite. But she said to her, "Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son mandrakes also?" Now this is just hilarious. I can't believe this is in the Bible. You remember when we were three years old and you took my Barbie? I still remember it. This is, now you try to take my mandrakes too, huh? Just like you did. Just like you did when you wore that dress and then you spilled that stuff on that dress and you never, get, you never said, sir, I still remember that. And it hurts. <laughs> this is that kind of argument. Oh, this is a sister argument. This is a brother argument. This is one of those, I've been mortally wounded since I was four years old and I've never forgiven you for it. And you're going to pay right now. Now look at this. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, no, no, I'm sorry. Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son Mandrake also? Rachel said, huh, here's the deal. Then he may lie with you tonight. And this is not um, making love. And this is literally a euphemism. It's just dirty. It's just, oh, he can have sex with you tonight. It's just thrown away. It's, it's, um, It's one of the only places where, Making love is talked about in this type of vulgarity. Uh, that he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son Mandrake. Do you see this? What just happened? And then look at this. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, um, You must come in to me tonight, uh, for I hired you with my son's Mandrakes. Okay, so first off, we got Leah saying, you took my husband, now you want my stinking mandrakes, right? That's where she starts. And then Leah ends up trading a night with Jacob for her mandrakes. She totally pays for sex with her own husband. Do you see what has happened? Family life has been replaced by consumerism. People are now commerce, something to be bought and sold. Human relationships have been stripped of their humanity and people are treated like cattle. And this is actually the fourth time this has happened. 
People who are meant to love each other. Treat each other like commerce, like cattle. If you remember the birthright, which was meant to be given and loved, Jacob stole. He took it. He didn't worry about his brother. He wanted the birthright more than he wanted to be in right relationship with his brother. Then what? Then he lied to his father. He wanted the blessing more than he wanted the the approval of God or more than he wanted to love his father. Do you see this? What happened the third time? Wives. Right? Laban turns his own daughter into something to barter with to get Jacob to work for 14 years. It's not a loving daughter to be handed off to a man at the altar with God as their witness to love and to sacrifice and to live together. No, it's something to get rid of. And what do we have here? Human relationships, sex is not something between a man and a woman. It's something to be bought and sold with mandrakes. People have been turned into commerce. Unchecked envy has turned a family into a freak show. Relationships are replaced with commercialism. Where we care more about what they can give me what they can provide for me than we do about loving each other. Listen, here's the incredible thing to me. Jesus Christ comes to earth. He lives a perfect life and he dies the just terrible death that he did. And what does he say? This is nuts. In John 17, we hear him say this. He says, Lord, Father, I want them to have all the things that they don't deserve. I want them, that's us, to have what they, what I deserve. Jesus says, God, I've left heaven, I'm here on earth, and I know everything that I deserve because of my perfect obedience and the fact that I am God in the flesh. Everything that I deserve, I want them to have. In other words, it's the opposite of envy. The total opposite of envy. Jesus says, I have achieved all of this and now I want them to have, in John 17, he says, I want them to have what I deserve. Envy is, I don't want them to have what they don't deserve. I deserve this. They shouldn't have it. And Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus says, I deserve it, but I want them to have it. I want them to have your love. The same love Jesus says in John 17 that I had with you in eternity before all of creation. That perfect love that we shared in the Trinity. I want all people to be a part of that love. They don't deserve it. But Jesus says, I want them to have it. Jesus says, I want them to be adopted into the family. I don't want to be the only one in the family. I want to share. I want to rejoice in their joy. This is nuts. If you're a single child in here, you know you don't feel this way. I have friends who are a single child. They're like, I love being a single child. I get spoiled at Christmas, my birthday, anything I do. There's no sharing gifts. Mom's got one, mom and dad have one financial responsibility, me. 
And Jesus, the only son of the father, does not live like this. He says, no, no, no. I want to spread my love. I want people to be brought into God's love. I don't want to be the only one in the family. I want to share. I want to rejoice in their joy. And I want them to know that they don't deserve it. Therefore, it's grace. And I always rejoice in grace. Jesus Christ loves to see people get things they don't deserve. I'm sorry. Many Christians, they don't. Many people who claim to be Christians, they don't like to see people get what they don't deserve. But if you understand that, if you understand grace, if you understand the only reason you are a Christian, if that's what you are, is because Jesus Christ rejoiced to see you get what you don't deserve. If you understand the grace of God at all, when you see other people getting things that they don't deserve, you'll say, wow, God is giving me a window into the gospel. I get to see that person get good things, even though they don't deserve it. And that's a picture of grace. What a joy. What an opportunity that I have to rejoice in the God who graciously gives people things they don't deserve. So, Justin, are you saying we should just ignore our painful circumstances? Like, you know, Rachel can't have children. She should just ignore that and just, you know, not worry about it? Absolutely not. She should bring that to God. She does bring that to God eventually. But this is what I'm saying. A Christian is somebody who knows when I get to heaven, the first glimpse of Jesus is going to undo it's going to undo and it's going to make up for every difficult and painful life experience that I've lived in this life. The first glimpse of Jesus is going to undo it all. All the injustices will be over. And down here on earth, I don't deserve what I got right now. I don't deserve to be standing here. I'm a 33-year-old guy. I don't deserve to be standing here preaching to people like I have everything figured out. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be a Christian. I don't deserve to be a child of the king. If I got what I deserved, I'd be wiped out totally. And yet, look what I have. That's what a Christian does. Look what you have. So I'm not going to envy these people who are getting things that maybe they don't deserve compared to me. I'm going to rejoice. It's a picture of the gospel. (coughs) So... Let's look at our heart. Aren't there people in your life? Do you have siblings? Do you have friends? Do you have colleagues? People you went to school with? Don't you have people you resent because of the good things that are happening to them? I bet some of you are so unhappy, largely just because of that. You want what they have. Grace takes that away. The gospel undoes that. The gospel pulls that out of us so that we can really rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But listen, how do we do that? How do we fight that? You can't look at yourself and say, oh man, Justin, stop being envious. (coughs) Excuse me. That doesn't work. You've got to take the spirit of the gospel into your heart and let it eat away at envy from the inside. 
Take the spirit of the gospel in your heart and let it eat away at the gospel. Let me show you how this is done. Let me get practical. For example, you're having a personality conflict. Okay? Relational conflict. Call it what it is. It's jealousy. Say, my jealousy comes from a refusal to see that the only person whose love really counts is God's. I already have. You're afraid of something, you're anxious, admit you're trying to find your security in something, and you're refusing to see the only person whose love you really need and the only security you really need, you already have in Christ. The only, Christian, the only way you're ever going to grow is if you begin to see so many of your sins and so many of your problems are not the things you're calling them, but a refusal to live out the gospel. It's a refusal to use the gospel on yourself. I know Christians are like, use the gospel? What? You know, to you? That's what it means. See, Christians think that there's believers and unbelievers in the world. Uh Uh-uh. No, we're all unbelievers. We all struggle to believe the gospel. We all struggle to believe the good news that God has accepted us completely by his grace. It's a refusal. When we refuse to believe the gospel, it's a refusal to continually say this. Listen, if I am perfect in his sight, through the righteousness of Christ being placed on me, if I am perfect in his sight, why am I acting like this? How do Christians handle criticism? How do Christians handle a bad childhood? How do Christians handle the fact that nobody asked them out or nobody has agreed to go out with them? How do Christians handle those things? They say this, I am a son of the king. I am a daughter of the king. My father loves me with a great one-way gracious love. And the only riches that count, the only love that lasts, the only family that matters, I already got. That's how a Christian handles things. That's using the gospel to fight your sin. Do you want to know how to overcome the self-pity in your life, the depression, the touchiness, the jealousy, the fear, the worry? It comes from this. What are you trying to get that you don't already have in Jesus? Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on on him, study him, meditate on what he's done, and you will gradually kill sin. You will gradually kill envy. That's how we grow. It's almost inevitable because God has done the work. He is the one who justifies us. He's the one that continues to sanctify us. He does the work. But listen, many of us don't know how to do that. We don't know how to fight our sin with the gospel. And so envy and jealousy and pride and that relational discord that comes from it, those things just feel like a huge, impossible weight on top of us, a weight that's too heavy for us to bear. How do I stop envying? How do, it's like me saying, how do I, I just, how do I stop wanting to be wealthy or how do I stop wanting something other people? It's impossible for me to do, Justin. It feels like a huge weight on top of me. Listen, a long time ago, and you can listen to it. I think it's a sermon by Tim, Pastor Timothy Keller um, called How People Change or How to Change. He uses this analogy, and I, th- I think it, it's phenomenal. This um, <clears throat> G. Campbell Morgan, a congregational minister, he once went to Italy and he saw a 600-year-old tombstone, okay? 600-year-old tombstone, right? On top of this tombstone 
was, it was, it was this huge concrete slab, okay, or a limestone, huge limestone slab, right? I feel like that's what people, like envy, it feels like that. What could move that enormous limestone slab? What could move it? But this is what he said. It was a 600-year limestone slab, but out of the middle of it was an oak tree. And if you think about this, what had happened hundreds of years ago, an acorn had found its way inside that tomb. An acorn. And eventually, that acorn grows up and does what acorns do. And it grows and it grows and it grows and grows. And can you imagine this little stick hitting that two-ton limestone slab? If I was the stick, I'm done. I got nothing. Right? I'm out. Might as well die, right? But what does a tree do? A tree pushes down into its root system. Pulls up its nourishment from its foundations. And eventually, eventually that little bitty twig, that little bitty stick cracks a limestone slab. And G. Campbell Morgan said he suddenly realized if God would put that kind of power of gradual, slow, biological growth in an acorn. Just think about how much potential you have inside of you. It's gradual potential. God's life has been planted in you. His spirit has been placed inside of you. And whatever your problems are, if you're willing to keep watering the acorn, who knows what slabs God can crack and roll off of you. In an acorn, what wins? A two-ton slab or an acorn? An acorn every time. That's the power of God's grace. I'm praying today that through the power of the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit that God cracks the slab of envy in your life today. That's how the gospel gets inside and it just grows and grows and grows. And eventually we don't even see the change that's taking place. Eventually, boom, it cracks. It could have been hundreds of years of growth and then one day. I don't know if that day day could be today for you. That day might be tomorrow for you. That That day might be in a year from now. But the acorn wins. God's spirit, the gospel grows. Colossians says that everywhere in the whole creation right now, the gospel is still bearing fruit and growing. You can't stop God's work from taking place. doesn't happen through our own self-effort, but it happens through a new look into the gospel of God's grace. So, Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your, your word. I thank you for kind of going to war against the idolatries of our heart. Father, we are human beings that envy and are jealous, and that is a cancer. That is carbon monoxide to our relationships, and I ask that you would crack the slab of envy and jealousy in our life. Let us truly love one another. Let us rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I know this is anti-American. 
which is anti-consumerism. We've been raised our whole life to compete against one another and not to love one another. And your kingdom is so countercultural, so upside down. I pray, God, that we know we can't try our way out of this. We can't do better our way out of this. Only the slow growth of the gospel in our heart can change us from the inside. So I ask that you would bring repentance, that you would bring faith. And as we come to the table, as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would fill us with yourself. As we take the body, we eat it. As we take the blood and we drink it, Father, you would speak a better word to us, that you would heal these wounds in our heart, that you would help us believe the gospel, that the God of the universe became a man and freely gave, freely opened his family, freely invited us in, total opposite of envy. May may a look at him change us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.